Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And as always, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath the chair in the row in front of you. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 this morning. Now, of course, Matthew is the very opening, the beginning of the New Testament. But I want you to recall for a minute how the Old Testament ends. At the very end of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and at the very end of the book of Malachi are these words in chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After these words were recorded in Malachi, it seemed as though the Lord went silent. For 400 years, they waited and waited for another prophet to come. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being one of those generations over the course of those 400 years who were waiting on a prophet like Elijah to come and declare that the day of the Lord had come? You, you can imagine these people, you know, each new generation wondering, okay, who is it? Is it someone among us? One of my family members, one of my neighbors, who is going to be this new prophet, this new Elijah who will proclaim the day of the Lord? But the people waited and waited for 400 years while God was seemingly silent. That is, of course, until an angel came to a young virgin named Mary, spoke to her. And then to Joseph, her betrothed, and then to some wise men and some shepherds. But even still, the people who knew that the day of the Lord had finally come was such a small number. It wasn't until John the Baptist began preaching that the 400 years of silence was finally broken in a way that everyone could hear. John the Baptist is the one that God raised up to be the new Messiah. He was the one raised up to proclaim that the day of the Lord had finally arrived. So this morning we're going to read about his ministry and specifically the message that he proclaimed. So let me read for us now from Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord as you take heed how you listen. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Now this morning we're going to look at our text under just two headings. First, John's ministry, and then John's warning. Let's begin with John's ministry in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now when Matthew uses that phrase, in those days, this is not an equivalent to once upon a time. This isn't just some fairy tale. Rather, this is Matthew's way of insisting on the reality of these historical events. I think it can be tempting to to read the stories from Scripture and forget that these happened. These actually took place. John the Baptist really wore camel's hair. He really ate locusts. He really was preaching out in the wilderness and baptizing for the remission of sins. He was doing all of this. These are real events that actually took place. Which means that John the Baptist really was quite a strange character. Look how he's described in verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Of course, from our perspective, this would be a very strange person. Just this past week, I went to a zoo with my kids, and along uh, inside the zoo, there was two camels that we got pretty close to. And I didn't get to touch them, but their hair looked quite uncomfortable. And yet we see that John wore that hair as his garment. And then consider how strange his diet was. I'm sure there's a great number of elementary school boys who would volunteer to eat a locust. Um, But this is strange. Wild honey meant that he would have gone up to a beehive and harvested that honey by hand without protective clothing like you might see beekeepers today. John the Baptist was strange. And so we have to wonder, why does Matthew give us all these details about who this man was? Well, for the person in the first century, hearing this description of John the Baptist, their mind would have immediately thought of Elijah, of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. Elijah is described this way in 2 Kings chapter 1, that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Matthew in our gospel is giving us these details to help hammer home the fact that John the Baptist stands as the new Elijah. Not that he's somehow a a reincarnated version of Elijah, but rather these two prophets of God are cut from the same cloth. Both of their ministries were ones of preparation. They both preached a message of repentance and calling people to prepare themselves for the day of the Lord to come. And then Matthew gives us an even more clear connection to the Old Testament about John the Baptist. He quotes from Isaiah in verse 3 and says, For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this quote in verse 3 of our passage is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And in the book of, in that, sorry, in that verse in the book of Isaiah, it's the beginning of this long section about the end times. So Isaiah covers, you know, chapters 40 through 66 is all prophecy about the future. 
24 chapters of the book of Isaiah begin with this verse, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. But remember the context of the book of Isaiah, who he was writing to. He was writing to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. They had been taken away from the promised land. The king who should have been reigning on the throne had been dethroned. And God's people were wondering, would God keep his promises? And so the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, gives them this reminder that his promises never fail. Though it may appear for some time that you know, they're in exile, things aren't going well, even still, the Lord will keep his promises. He would go on to bring the people back from exile and into the promised land. But even more than that, Isaiah gives this prophecy about the coming Messiah. He prophesies about the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions. And he gives a prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth. And so by including this quote from Isaiah 40 in Matthew chapter 3, we're supposed to see that John the Baptist is the one crying out in the wilderness and preparing a way for the Lord, preparing for all of these events, events to take place. One commentator put it, the Jewish reader familiar with Isaiah would understand Matthew to be saying all that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40 through 66 is now available to you. If you choose to recognize your king, this is the beginning of the glorious end. Let's consider for a moment what John the Baptist, this voice in the wilderness, was actually proclaiming. Because his role was far greater than simply announcing the arrival of a king. He wasn't just a trumpet player announcing that the king had entered the room in medieval times, right? This, John the Baptist's message that he preached requires a specific response from all who hear it. He says this in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we have this prophet of God out in the desert proclaiming a gospel of repentance. But who is he proclaiming this gospel of repentance to? Who was his audience? It was God's own chosen people. It was the Israelites in the area who, who, who already knew the law and the prophets. They had knowledge of all of God's promises from Isaiah, and they were the ones who needed to hear this call to obey, who needed to hear this call to repentance. Consider how radical that must have been. That John's call to repentance was being preached to the people who should have been the most prepared of all. R.C. Sproul says this, His message is clear. The Jews were too unclean. God's own people were not ready for his coming, and they need to repent. Now let's consider the position of those first century Israelites who, who heard this preaching from John the Baptist. I think there's a lot of ways in which you and I today in 2023, are in a much more knowledgeable, much more privileged position than the original audience of this message. You and I have the totality of the Bible. We have the New Testament. We have knowledge of this Messiah who was long prophesied and has finally come. And we know that one day Christ will come again. We know so much more than the ancient Israelites did. And yet our response to John's message should still be the same we should actively repent from our sins time and time again 
Because the kingdom of heaven is here. Not just the kingdom of heaven is at hand as it was for the Israelites, but the kingdom of heaven has come. And so when we consider this message, we should be eager to repent. Now, what does that mean to actually repent of our sins? I think the most helpful definition that I found comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. From question and answer 87, this is so helpful. It says this, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Remember that. It's God's grace that brings us to repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So do you see what this means? Our repentance is the result of God's grace working in our hearts. It's God's grace that helps us to see our sin and our rebellion against God. It's God's grace that helps us to apprehend and understand the mercy of God in Christ. It's God's grace that causes us to, to hate our sin, to desire to kill the sin that remains in our hearts and turn away from them. It's God's grace that allows us to turn from our sins and turn towards God. It's God's grace that enables us to endeavor after or to try for, to aim towards new obedience in the Lord. And so when John the Baptist is calling the people of God to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is all the more true for you and I today. We should repent because the long-awaited kingdom isn't just at hand, it has finally arrived. The king is here. Jesus Christ has come. He has lived, he has died, he rose again and ascended into heaven where he sits enthroned over all creation. He is our king. And so we are called to repent from our sins and to trust in him. And we are called to regularly, ongoing, repent of our sins and turn back towards God. And so I ask you this, when you come to church on Sunday mornings and you participate in that confession of sin, what's really happening in your hearts during that time? Think about that. What's really happening in your hearts when you're given that time for silent confession of your sins? Or what about the other, day, other six days of the week when the Lord brings to mind some sin that you've committed and calls you to repentance? What does that confession look like? What does that repentance look like? I want you to think through the definition of repentance from the Shorter Catechism. Really, I'd encourage you this afternoon, take time to, to read it, to study it, to look up the proof texts that are supporting it. Consider deeply what it really means to repent and consider if that's the position of your heart. Do you have hatred for your sin? not, then ask for God's grace to work in your heart. Do you apprehend and understand and appreciate the mercy of Christ and what he has done on your behalf? If not, then take the time to dwell on that and to consider what it is that God has actually done for you. When you confess your sins, do you do so with the aim toward new obedience? Not that you'll do it perfectly, but is it your heart's desire to aim towards new obedience in Christ? 
I think we've all seen young children who are kind of coached into saying I'm sorry to their sibling and then turn right around and do the same thing again. That ought not to be what our lives look like. We ought to endeavor towards new obedience. And we ought to praise the Lord when his Holy Spirit gives us the power to obey. We ought to give him the credit when he helps us to defeat the sin that still exists in our hearts. Now, one might imagine that this call to repentance being preached to the Jewish people might have elicited some different responses. Perhaps the people who came out to hear John's preaching would have been insulted by this. They could have said, we're the Jews. We have the law and the prophet. We have God's promises. We don't need to hear this. We're already prepared for the day of the Lord to come. We're good. And yet, in humility, the people respond with repentance. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the people, with this great humility and a sense of true repentance, desire to turn from their sins, turn towards God, and be baptized. I think we should admire their true humility here. In those days, the only people who would have been baptized would have been pagans converting to Judaism. Somebody who grew up as a Jew would have never been baptized in these days. The Gentile converts were the ones who were considered ceremonially unclean, and so they were required to participate in this symbolic washing before joining the community of Israel. But in humility, so many of the Jewish people in that region heard the call to repentance, and they came forth confessing their sins and being baptized. However, we we see that that wasn't the response of all the people. Not everyone who came out came with the intention to repent and be baptized. The next section tells us of the Pharisees and Sadducees who responded with pride, with arrogance, and with refusal to repent. So let's look at our second heading, John's warning, and see how John handles these people. It says in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These Pharisees and these Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day. And throughout the Gospels, we actually see regularly that Jesus rebukes these men for their hypocrisy. John is clearly doing the same thing here. So in this passage, we're meant to really see the contrast between the humility of those who came forth for repentance and baptism and the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who came forward not with true repentance, but to investigate and to judge John the Baptist. From their perspective, from the Pharisees and Sadducees' perspective, they were already more than prepared for the day of the Lord. They knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They they likely already thought of themselves as abundantly prepared for the day of the Lord. But in reality, that was just external. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will compare the same group of religious leaders to whitewashed tombs sparkling clean on the outside, but dead and rotting in their hearts. Look at what John's rebuke says of them. He calls them a brood of vipers. This is strikingly harsh. 
but it carries an even greater significance than you and I would consider today. You know, if you call somebody else a snake, you're likely referring to them as slimy or sneaky or conniving. But John's rebuke actually harkens all the way back to the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. You'll recall that in the fall, it was the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And so John the Baptist was telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that rather than acting like the religious leaders they should have been, they were acting satanic. They should have been the first to repent of their sins, and instead, they were leading the people astray by their hypocrisy. Outwardly, they checked all the boxes, but in their hearts, they lacked true repentance. And so John the Baptist says to them, bear fruit in keeping repentance. Meaning that if we're truly repentant, there should be fruit from that. There should be results that are evident and visible. New Testament scholar Douglas Sean O'Donnell kind of teases out the illustration. He says, if you see a fruit on a tree, you know the tree is alive. If you see good fruit, you know it is alive and well. Repentant people who have truly heard and understood the gospel bear fruit. That is, they love God and love others and show this love by how they live. The Pharisees and the Sadducees lacked that fruit. Their repentance wasn't true repentance. They may have noted their sin, they may have confessed and said they were sorry, but they didn't truly turn away from their sin and towards God. They didn't have, how the Shorter Catechism put it, they they didn't have this endeavor after new obedience. This is not all too dissimilar from uh, how Pharaoh is described in the book of Exodus. You recall that Pharaoh had been holding God's people in slavery in Egypt and refusing time and time again to let God's people go. And so the Lord sent these ten plagues upon the country. After the seventh plague, there's this moment where it seems like Pharaoh sees his sin, confesses it, and admits that he's wrong. It says in Exodus 9.27, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. It seems like Pharaoh admits that he's wrong. It seems like he's doing the right thing, right? That he's admitted that he's messed up and he wants to make things right. But the reality is Pharaoh experienced no true change of heart. Just a few verses later, it says that when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again. And hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So we see here that just merely admitting guilt, just merely confessing our sin, is not true repentance. Merely saying, I'm sorry, God, isn't true repentance. Rather, true repentance leads to actual life change. True repentance, truly turning from our sins, should bring about a transformation in our hearts that only the Holy Spirit can do. It should bring about the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, where he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. This is the kind of fruit that was missing in the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
So again, this should really cause us to do some self-examination. To look at the fruit of our own repentance. Do we truly endeavor after new obedience? Now, at the start of the new year, I think it's common for us to kind of reflect back on the last 12 months. I want you to reflect back on the confession and repentance that you've participated in. Think through 52 Lord's Days of confessing your sins to the Lord, of repenting from them. Where have you seen the fruit? Where have you seen the Lord growing you and maturing you and making you more and more into the image of his son? How has he grown you in this last year? Has he grown your love for your neighbor? Perhaps your peace in the midst of suffering? Or your patience with your children? Or your kindness towards a coworker, Or any of these other fruit of the Spirit? How has he grown these areas in your life? I hope you can really note those. I hope you can note what the Lord has done in your heart for the last 12 months. But if by chance that's not the case, if you reflect back on the last 12 months and, and can't see the signs of God's fruit growing in your life, then I urge you to consider again John's call to true repentance. By the power of God's grace at work in your heart, Turn from sin and turn back towards God. Or perhaps consider what a different John, John the disciple of Christ, said in Revelation to the church in Ephesus. He said, but I have this against you. You have, remembered, or sorry, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, I urge you, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, the next portion of John's warning towards these Pharisees and Sadducees is that they are resting on their own ancestry. He says to them in verse 9, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So it seems like these Pharisees and Sadducees are, are simply resting on their bloodline, that they are descended from Abraham. So what's implied is that they didn't need to demonstrate true repentance. They didn't need to show fruit in their lives because their Ancestry.com report came back with all the right boxes checked. But as John has already warned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their hypocrisy puts them squarely outside the godly lineage that they claim to inherit. They may descend from Abraham by blood, but their lack of faith puts them outside the descendants of the godly line and puts them squarely in the ungodly line. Dr. Benjamin Glad, one of the New Testament professors at RTS, comments this about the Pharisees and Sadducees in our passage. He says that ultimately only two lines exist in the story of redemption, the godly and the ungodly. The godly line lays claim to the promise of God by faith, whereas the ungodly remain hostile to God and to his people. And so the religious leaders of the day, although they were descendants of Abraham, did not cling to the faith of the God of Abraham. They didn't trust in the Lord. 
And so John the Baptist warns them with a, quite a stern warning of what's coming their way. Look at what he says about them in verse 10 and then in verse 12. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see John's warning here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, without true repentance, are headed for the fires of hell. Now, I know we, we don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to think about it. It's uncomfortable. And yet we must. If I'm going to faithfully preach this passage to you, then we have to remind ourselves that hell is real. Damnation and eternal fires of hell is coming for all of those who die without faith in Christ. Let me help you make sense of John's warning here in verse 12 and see just how dire this warning is. You see, when the Jewish farmers in the day would gather their wheat and harvest it together, there was a covering on top of the wheat kernel called the chaff. And the chaff had to be removed before you could then process the wheat into anything useful. And so these farmers, they would take a winnowing fork, which looked a good bit like a, like a pitchfork, and they would toss the wheat into the air. And just with the slightest breeze, the chaff would blow away and the good portions of the wheat would fall right to the floor where they could be gathered up and used. But that pile of chaff in the corner of the room was useless. So just to clear space, they would set it ablaze and let it burn. So do you see what John's saying with this analogy? That the wheat are those who belong to the Lord. The chaff are those who have refused to repent and trust in God and are destined for the unquenchable fires of hell. And so John is essentially announcing that because Christ has come, he's come with his winnowing fork in hand. The wheat are about to be separated from the chaff. And he's warning that the fires of hell are really coming for those who are without Christ. And I know this is uncomfortable for us to consider, but we want to be as balanced as the Bible is balanced. So when the text makes such a clear warning of the fires of hell, we need to do the same. Because hell is real, whether or not we want to deal with its reality. It is abundantly true throughout the totality of Scripture that all such sinners who fail to repent of their sins and fail to trust in Christ alone as their Savior, they are destined for eternal damnation in the fires of hell. R.C. Sproul writes this, We live in a culture where no one is afraid of the judgment of God, but the biblical portrait is of a God who will judge the earth. A God who will call every living creature to account. If we do not bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, we will be cast into the fire where we belong. Now, as you hear this warning, perhaps you realize that your heart is lacking the fruit of true repentance. 
Perhaps you've been here Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and you've said the confession of sin, but your heart has remained cold to the things of God. You have no real love for him in your heart. If that's you, then perhaps the Holy Spirit is using John's words from Matthew 3 to lead you to repentance. Maybe the Lord is waking you up to the reality that you need to actually repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. And if that's you, then hear this. There is hope. Remember what I said earlier, that repentance itself is the grace of God at work in our hearts. If his Holy, it's his Holy Spirit who enables you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ in the first place. And so this is what John points us to in verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This baptism that John performed was ceremonial. It was external cleaning. It was like power washing the outside of whitewashed tombs. Now it pointed, his baptism really did point to the, the internal repentance that these people needed to have. But his baptism was ultimately ceremonial. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who, who actually does the work to bring these dead bones to life and to draw us to repentance. It's Christ who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. This, of course, should make us think of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Christ, when the ascended Christ sent his Holy Spirit like tongues of fire to dwell upon the people of God. And what this means is what I've been saying all along, that it's God who works repentance in us. It's God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who works in us to cleanse our hearts from the inside out. It's the Holy Spirit's work to draw us to repentance and to enable us to first turn away from our sins and to trust in Christ. God is not expecting us to somehow muster up this true repentance in ourselves. We can never do that on our own. It's the Holy Spirit's work to awaken cold and dead hearts who opens our blind eyes and enables us to repent of our sin and to trust in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, if you've come to this Lord's Day worship service with us today and you've not yet repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, then I plead with you, repent and believe in the gospel. If the Holy Spirit is working in your heart this morning and causing you to want to believe in him, then do it. By God's grace, he's given you another day to live this life. But hear me, you are not promised tomorrow. None of us are. So don't put this off for another day. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day you finally turn from your sin and turn towards the Lord and trust in him and endeavor after new obedience in the Lord. Let today be the day when you trust in the Savior who has come to live the perfect life that you would never be able to live who has died in your place on the cross and took the wrath of God that you deserved upon himself. Trust in the Lord who's given you his righteousness. Let today be the day of salvation. Trust in him. If you're in Christ, don't you know that this has been true for you? 
Don't you know what it was like before you knew Christ and how the Holy Spirit first moved in you to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ? How sweet is the work of the Holy Spirit, not only in bringing us to faith, but in continuing to bring us to repentance, continuing to sanctify us, continuing to remove the impurities that remain in our hearts. The Holy Spirit continues to do this work. He's the one who makes you aware of that sin in your heart. He's the one who draws you to repentance. He's the one that draws you to confess your sin and gives you that desire for new obedience. It's the Lord's work to assure you of the forgiveness of your sins. I love this quote from Ed Welch, who's the head of CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. He said this about the Holy Spirit's work in drawing us to confession and repentance. He says, you can be sure that the spirit who inspires your confession is the same God who delights in forgiving you. When the Holy Spirit inspires you to confess your sins and to repent of them, you need to really trust and be assured that the Lord really does delight in forgiving you of your sins. He really does delight to offer you his forgiveness. Let me remind you of the, the, the verse we used as the assurance of pardon earlier in the service, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to forgive you. He's faithful to cleanse you. He's faithful to continue drawing you to repentance. And so this is really the application of this sermon and of John's words in Matthew 3. Repent. Turn from your sin yet again and endeavor this week towards new obedience in Christ. For the kingdom of heaven has come. Our king has come. He is reigning victoriously today. So let's submit to him. Let's turn to him yet again. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you. And we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for his perfect life, for his death on the cross in our place, for his resurrection from the grave and ascension into heaven. And this day, we especially thank you for the Holy Spirit, which you sent to convict us of our sins and to draw us to repentance. Lord, I pray that those who have not yet turned from their sin and trusted in you would do so today. Would you please work salvation in their hearts as only you can? We also ask you for your Holy Spirit to continue working in all of our hearts. Continue to draw all of us to repentance. Convict us of sin. And by your Holy Spirit's power, would you help us to endeavor after new obedience? Would you do this for your glory and for our good? Amen.